the big breakthrough for me came with this controversy around the South African sprinter, Oscar Pistorius, right? He qualified for the Olympics as a 400-meter runner using his body weight to load that prosthetic. And then as he passes over his center of mass with his good posture, he gets that direct horizontal return of power, which just goes to show that the foot is basically very, very rigid and very sprung, as it were. I don't want to say flexible because highly flexible feet are not a good idea for runners, right? Because they they leak power and they lose power, right? So you're holding that ankle and you're stiffening that ankle and you're using your muscle power to stabilize, not to propel, especially in distance running, right? And so when people start to understand, oh, that simple lever of the ankle is basically just a spring, meaning that you need this absolutely high integrity ankle joint to be able to transfer all those uh, you know, rotating and off-plane forces into a linear force when you come off the ground. Welcome to the Run Form Podcast. I'm Bobby McGee, running mechanics expert. And I'm Matt Pandola, your run-specific strength coach. Matt and I have been working together for almost a decade on some of the top athletes in the world, and we've decided to share that process with you guys. Hey, Matt, good to see you again. I'm excited because we've now finally got a nice structure going, you know, with the next part of the series, just going through the whole body in terms of what you're looking for um, and how that all fits together. And I'm, again, looking forward to seeing you next week. We get together again in, in Tucson and we do some work. So so uh, exciting to be able to uh, to see you more often than I have been recently. Yeah, man, I'm looking forward to it too. I know every time we're around each other, it's just, getting one more percent out of that experience and it really adds up though feel like these camps that we've been teaching have just gotten smoother and smoother and more efficient and i really feel like serving these athletes it's been a lot of fun but also selfishly i feel like i just get that much better every time so looking forward to it sir it's going to be a lot of fun and of course this camp for those of you listening is it's going to center a lot for me around the very subject we're talking about today. When we are looking at our athletes, their, how they function, if you will, I feel like that subject in itself can be confusing. What is functional? So I'll let Bobby talk a little bit more about the foot and the ankle complex, how that works with the greater toe. But that's a lot of times where I am really looking first and foremost, how that athlete is moving through that lower limb yeah we had a bit of a debate as to where where do you start right and and there's two two schools of thought right so we started off with the with our last show just talking about the body as as a global you know what bobby i call it an athletic anchor you know a lot of times that's where i mean by saying where where we're looking the whole body of course right but when an athlete's on their feet and looking at how that foot is actually functioning and a chance to do that, especially if we're looking at that athlete barefoot, that's what I prefer to do. And it tells us a big, big story. And I, I just feel like a few pointers that we can give today would give people a better understanding about what that really means and what that looks like for good athletic anchoring. Yeah, no, no, I think that's a great one. I was just trying to stop some noises there. So uh, let, let's start off with the great toe. Firstly, you know, uh, if people just understand how the foot strike works and then they can start understanding, um, okay, what, what is required of the muscles, the tendons, the ligaments, and the bones in your foot, right? And we know that the bones have 
the bones in the foot are, are multiple, right? And then each one has a, has a different function. But if we look at in terms of running, whether that athlete lands on the outside of their heel uh, where they should, or they land on the outside of their forefoot on that fifth metatarsal, um, you know, for that for that midfoot strike, we, the one thing we don't want is that forefoot strike, right? We don't want them landing up on their toes. But there's always going to be that rotation from the outside, whether it's the heel or the midfoot, towards that center line coming off the ground between the, uh, the first and the second toe. And the interesting thing about the anatomy of the toes are that the, the great toe or the big toe only has two phalanges, whereas all four of the other toes have uh, three phalanges. So they, they're much more sort of mobile. But the great toe serves as that, that key, that initial, once it flexes, it makes the entire arch and the foot and the ankle rigid, right? And that forms that base for those uh, uh, tendons to store elasticity and then at that point of toe off to, to release that elasticity. And so if people have locked up ankles or they have, uh, um, you know, situations on the bottom of their feet where they're sensitive or they tend to stay out on the outside of their foot or they roll too much inwards, that effectiveness of that windlass mechanism, which is the stiffening mechanism, uh, starts to become uh, problematic, right? And then people have to run with their quads and they're not able to use their calves. They're not able to use that wonderful first lever uh, of the triple springs that we talk about in running. Yeah. And when you say triple springs and windlass mechanism, when I describe that, I just think about that spring and that function is load to explode. That's that's the way I, I think of that. And when that big toe, when we first look at that in our assessment, which again, that's something you guys can check out online. It's free on our site. But we look at that big toe and that position as it's flexing. Is it coming up in a more centrated or central position? Or is it internally rotating towards your other toes? For most of us, because of all of the years of wearing shoes that are a bit small for our footbed, getting those imprisoned toes, working around tracks, working like those kind of functionalities throughout the system, we start to compensate. Mainly, we start to see it in that big toe function. So a lot of times what I like to look at there is are we even able to get that big toe flexing properly so we can load that spring? That's the first step to me. Yeah, so it was, uh, it was a big breakthrough for me in understanding foot mechanics um, and, and you know, the level of understanding that you have of, of, of how, how that foot functions uh, from a strength uh, perspective, right? So a lot of people don't see the toe as, you know, the great toe or the foot as particularly muscular, but the big breakthrough for me came with this controversy around the South African sprinter, Oscar Pistorius, right? So he he qualified for the Olympics as a 400-meter runner, and he had, you know, two legs missing. So he had two prosthetics, right? And uh, he's obviously uh, below the knee amputee, so he's able to flex his knee. But uh, the research that was done that was both used to allow him into the games and then conversely uh, also used to show why he shouldn't have been allowed in the games because he doesn't have a very big vertical component. So a lot of the release of his elastic return uh, came 
without having to overcome gravity. So he's using his body weight to load that prosthetic. And then as he passes over his center of mass with his good posture, he gets that direct horizontal return of power. And all of that goes to show that the foot, so he was more effective than any able-bodied sprinter in transferring that power, which just goes to show that the foot is basically very, very rigid and very um, sprung, as it were. I don't want to say flexible because highly flexible feet are not a good idea for runners, right? Because they, they leak power and they lose power. But so often when you're teaching um, form drills or when you're teaching dynamic mobility, right? You talk about stiffening the ankle, turning it into sprung steel or turning it into a carbon fiber. Uh, and that all talks about isometric holding, right? So you're holding that ankle and you're stiffening that ankle and you're using your muscle power to stabilize, not to propel, especially in distance running, right? And so when people start to understand, oh, that simple lever of the ankle is basically just a spring that has a medial component. And the last thing that comes up there before I want to hear what you say about that is understanding that, that the plantar fascia and the arch of the foot is also a loading mechanism, right? But it loads most effectu effectively if it goes inwards and then it allows it opens outwards. So the, the force of loading is, is internal rotation and the unloading is external rotation. And uh, for people to understand, it's then the job of your hip and your knee, but mostly your hip, to turn that external rotating power release, that, that elastic return, into forward motion. And so you'll often see good runners that when they're coming off the ground, their, foot so, their feet are quite often in that supinated position, right, where they're coming on on their outer toes. And that's just a little bit of hip control where you're trying to get them to come off the ground between their big toe and, and their second toe. And it's fascinating to understand that some research is even showing that 50% of our elastic return comes out of that plantar fascia and out of that Achilles tendon, meaning that you need this absolutely high integrity ankle joint to be able to transfer all those, uh, you know, rotating and off plane forces into a linear force when you come off the ground. Yeah. So a couple points that I would bring up here. First, just like this camp we're going to, again, I'm going to probably start the conversation off with joint by joint theory. And I, something I believe that really has helped me to get to the point quicker with an athlete. That's why we do movement improvement and looking at mobility of that big toe joint, that first meta. When we explain this mobility stability stacking theory, it would be that we have more mobility in or optimal mobility, I should say, in that big toe joint, but then stability in the arch, mobility in the ankle, stability in the knee, and up the path we go, up the chain we go. So it goes from mobility to stability. So if we look at that and we say that we know that that athlete should be working on the mobility through the big toe joint in centration, what I mean by that is that they may be able to get that big toe up, but again, it's internally rotating and we want to get more central. We want to get more centration. Now, that in itself, though, doesn't mean that is, everything is stacked exactly in the middle. It just means that it's more optimal in that joint position for what's going to be relative 
for the demands of your skill set. And that is where we want to start because if that big cho joint is internally rotating, then we know that we're not able to really turn the arch on as well as we should. And we're not able to really get that really good windless mechanism triggered, if you will, or loaded to explode. And, and that's where the system starts. So just wanted to point out the importance of that to us. And what we normally would see is that we have athletes that will wear their shoes almost for everything. So in the beginning, I like to say at least start off with a couple of these drills where we will be barefoot and then we can get our shoes back on after that. But we do want to slowly start to build up the strength of our feet, maybe doing more of our protocol, things that don't have impact with bare feet, walking around the house with bare feet. That in itself can really strengthen the system up and um, a little story here, but I think would really help for people to understand. I kind of accidentally started to find this out with athletes that would come in and start working with me in the beginning. Maybe they were in an 11 shoe. And then over a period of, say, six months or so, they would notice that their foot's getting a lot stronger, that they have better overall function. But Interestingly enough, it's time to get those new pair of running shoes. And it wasn't uh, surprising to me at the uh, six month period of time or so, we would see athletes going back and getting 10 and a halves instead of 11s. They say, why, why are my feet getting smaller? And I think of it like a bridge and the trussles on a bridge or that suspension system. We've now started to really strengthen that arch. Doesn't mean that if your arch is lower or if it's higher, that's to me not the standard. It's just how we're getting that foot really strong and capable. And we've increased the capacities of, of what that foot can handle now going up the chain. And so, yeah, it's interesting. I just kind of stumbled into that over time. Just a lot of athletes I'm working with are actually going a half a shoe size down. And uh, that's that that was actually fairly frequent. So I thought that was kind of interesting to share. Yeah, and I, I think the opposite of that is true, right? So uh, when, when a woman is pregnant, she uh, has the prolactin. The prolactin makes all those ligaments relax, right? And so the joints become quite unstable and they go up a shoe size or a half a shoe size, right? In, in, the, in the same thing. You brought up so many things, Matt, and I and I always thought when we decided we were going to do a podcast together that we're so fond of the minutiae that the two of us that we get lost in the weeds sometimes, right? Because it's it's so exciting to us. So I thought I'd just review um, again, just go back so that we can bring all those things that you've just mentioned into context, right? So the foot's coming down. Uh, it's trying to land on the outside of the heel, and then it's going to rotate inwards, always trying to land on the outside of the of the midfoot, and then it's it's going to roll inwards, right? And so now a couple of things happen with that great toe. If that great toe is too far internally rotated, and you're starting to get that Kusanib, uh bunion effect, right? Because if you look at an African runner, there's this huge gap between their their great toe and their second toe, right? So they they can really balance well. But if you imagine your foot is rolling inwards. It needs that big toe to post up again so it can store. And then when once that ground contact is over and it's rolling through, now the windlass effect comes into play. Similarly, if the great toe joint is inflexible, right? You have 
uh, flexor hallucis rigidus or you have flexor hallucis limitus and that great toe is starting to lose its range of motion, right? Now you post up against it, but it doesn't flex. So it doesn't get the windlass going. So in the same way that you would overpronate if your big toe was not giving you something to post up against and you were rolling over that first uh, that first metatarsal, similarly with a rigid big toe, you're not able to get the windlass going and your big toe is keeping your foot on the lateral side and so you're losing a whole lot of elastic return. And your hip's job is to guide the foot in, but thereafter, once the foot is on the ground, it takes over, it does the loading, it does the stiffening, and then it does the releasing, right? And so you keep talking about going up the chain and that's why a conversation like this is pretty hard, right? Because a podiatrist is looking at your toes or he's looking at your arch or something like that, right? Whereas we are always saying, you know, what's it causing? Is it causing more injuries? Is it causing a, a lack of performance? Is it reducing this athlete's ability to collect mileage? All of those things come, come into play in that conversation. So that's absolutely fascinating. And that's when shoe choice comes into it, right? It's not as simple as a, do I want cushioning? Do I want width? Do I want length? Do I want support, right? The, those things play into the very specific gate gate of that athlete. And I, I love the idea of, of starting sessions off barefoot where people get that relationship. Because one of the things about the great toe I've found in all these years of working with athletes is they stick them in a sock, they stick them in the shoe, and they forget about them. They never think that they need to be trained, they need to be stretched, they need to be mobilized, they need to be taken care of, right? So things, you know, simple things like toenails, right? If your toenails are too short, you've got problems. If your toenails are too long, you've got problems, right? So that, to me, the biggest thing about feet, especially toes, is TLC, right? So I'd, I'd like you to speak a little bit about, you know, toe separation and giving your, your shoes, your feet, a much greater opportunity to get out of your feet, out of your shoes often so that, you know, you can have that, that uh, proprioceptive response as well. I mean, just walking on grass with the, with the blades of the grass tickling the arch of your foot creates stimulation and strength and stability, you know? And, and there's that whole grounding concept as well, which I really buy into, right? That if we never touch the ground, we never get grounded, we never get earth, right? And I think there's times of the day that you really have to be out there barefoot with your, with your feet actually touching the ground. Yeah, and there's there's a few things there. I think again, we talk a lot about things we're passionate about and getting into the weeds with some of these things. So I'll try to keep it as simple as I can. It, to me, the hierarchy would be to just start with getting your feet used to walking around the house, something that's going to be um, familiar to you, where you're where your surroundings. You're not likely to catch your toe on something and 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 uh, cause more harm than good, right? So that's the first step to me. Um, went back when wearing the um, the the five toe shoes there, or the you know the vibram five fingers, vibram five. Thank you, five toes. Uh, yeah, um, there was some athletes I knew that actually broke some toes. They they weren't used to walking around in those, and so I think you know you graduate now. I'll describe and also why I actually still use those. I still have a pair of those. I use them. But uh, the other step to me is there's something called correct toes. And, you know, I tout that a lot. Uh, I should have stock in the company. They're not a sponsor, but they should be. 
uh, for most athletes, I think it can be really beneficial to help. It. And when I say most, if you do our toe yoga assessment, you will see that if you are having trouble with that function, there you go. There, is, there are correct toes. Bobby has them right there. There you go. Good man. Good man. Yeah, they should be on my feet, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, and so, and you know, I, in general, will wear correct toes every day, anywhere between uh, a few minutes to a few hours a day, I will wear them comfortably. And I just try to make it a habit. Now, for me personally, I'll tell you when I was in high school, running on a track, constantly turning left, that right foot would kind of roll in. So my right big toe, it does internally rotate. And, I, and I'll and i tell you that the correct toes doesn't completely take that away, especially after when I finally figured it out, I was already in my late 30s, right? So um, this is kind of formed the way it is going to be, but I'm going to basically get just that little bit more out of my foot function with the correct toes, keeping me in a better position walking around. So I can testify that it does make a difference. I believe in prehab and then obviously uh, the ability to increase our performance. But what I mean by that is, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Don't worry about it. Right. I personally think that we have to take more control out of the situation and, and look at areas like this. So for me with that right big toe, I'm being preventative here. I'm helping myself to make more progress without getting injured, right? And that's uh, what I believe is one of the steps I take to help me do that. I haven't had any injuries there, but I don't want any either. And I also notice a difference in my performance. I uh, feel a difference in my performance when I'm consistent wearing those correct toes. And then as far as the foot function goes itself, I will cover just a couple areas here, but we have a drill that we like to do. It's, uh, I think you call it the GRF. Um, and I'll- Yep, yep. So we we came up with this with Ben and um, I've been I've been really using it myself in my own protocol, love it. And uh, yeah, let's just talk about what that drill is. We'll have a video that you can look to for this movement as well. Yep, yep. So, you know, I just, uh... My whole life, I've been looking at the, my, my whole professional career, I've been looking at the feet of African runners, right? And uh, all, all the great African runners come from along the Great Rift Valley, right? And so I just used the word Great Rift and added feet to it. So Great Rift feet, so the drill that you came up with, which I think is fantastic, um, with the bands for the feet to address that, uh, it, you know, that we call them GRFs, Great Rift feet, right? And... Uh, one thing I just wanted to add to what you said there, Matt, uh, and the whole concept of prehab, maybe this will help people lift that prehab conversation up. So prehabilitation is looking at a chain, and we know the whole concept of the weakest link in a chain, right? And so when you, when you damage something or you have some sort of an injury, it's the physiotherapist's job to get it back to where it was. But when you get it back to where it was, it still remains the weakest link in the chain, right? And so what you want to do is, is you want to take that weakest link in the chain and you, you want to make it not the weakest link. You want to make something else that you might not know about at this stage be the next one that fails, right? So when you break a bone, you never break the bone in the same place again, right? Because it's just so much thicker, so much stronger in that spot, you might break it somewhere else. So that's why how I like to watch prehabilitation. I don't want that to happen again. And I don't want this per person to be say to me, well, you know, my, my 
fifth metatarsal is always fracturing. Okay, well, it's fracturing for a reason. That's the weakest link in your chain. Let's make sure next time round, something else fractures. If it's the fourth one, fine. At least we've got the fifth one sorted out, right? It's now no longer the weakest link in the chain. And then just one more thing on the barefoot thing and, and wearing the correct toes. Remember that people that are habitually unshod normally come from areas where the surface is considerably softer than modern surfaces. So I can walk around barefoot all day on wooden floors, right? And I can walk around barefoot all day outside, but I can't walk around all day on a tiled surface. My feet get very sore. So people just aware that you have these fat pads under your shoe, uh, under your feet, uh, and those fat pads, as you get older, those fat pads can diminish, all right? And when you're working on a hard surface, your foot is not allowed to go into the surface. The surface is always winning and pushing up. That's often why triathletes have problems with their feet because of the rigidity of the, of the bike shoe. The bike shoe is designed to be rigid to effectively transfer power into the pedal, right? And it, the bike shoe doesn't pay credence to the, the, the need for a little bit of softness below the shoe. And so, so the, bike, the bike pedal pushes that first met head up and it's always in that position. It does not flex during the bicycle stroke the pedal stroke it doesn't flex right and so it starts to become locked in there and locked in in a high position which is really really counterproductive for running so you know if you're a triathlete and not just a pure runner especially we're a triathlete you need to give more tlc more attention more strengthening more mobility uh to to your feet and especially that great toe because of that situation. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up too, Bobby, because I think that with pure runners, this has become more of uh, a conversation and something we see more often when somebody is in those bike shoes or maybe they're doing a lot of skiing for the winter. There's, there's a lot of different variables that happen there. We're starting to look at that function being a little bit more restricted again, and that might be something they have to revisit but also because more and more runners are choosing to do, say, some easy cycling for cross-training. And these days, a lot of times you might go into a spin class or you might, what you're doing is you're clipping into these pedals, though. It's not the old days of just wearing your running shoes and, and putting them into uh, pedals that, uh, that, that, that don't have clips, right? So you're in these cycling shoes. A lot of times, even when you're not like a, a triathlete or a cyclist. So something that uh, I think has happened more often lately is that uh, runners who are using that as cross training will start to maybe experience some of those restrictions as well. And with that drill that we were talking about, we did with Ben, we'll have that video linked up, but we take that mini band and we have it so that it's wrapped around the big toe on each right and left foot. And then you're going in just a little bit of a wide walk. And as you come up with your foot, that big toe is being pulled more to an optimal position, more centrated. That's the way we teach in the video. We're not trying to get too wide, but we're also making sure it's comfortable and it feels like a good range for your big toe. And then as you go to lift that foot up, now 
it's triggering that whole winless system the way that it's meant to be triggered. And, and that's kind of where we want that to be a more automatic response. So getting the feeling of that movement, I, that's why I like that drill so much. I think it really transfers really well once you, you get into your running. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Absolutely essential part of that conversation. I, I think a, a good place for us to go now to, to, to finish up is to just talk about um, again, up the chain, right? So that people consider, let's say, uh, you know, your pelvis is a little bit not where you want it to be or your SI joint is not where you want it to be or your lumbar spine is not quite quite in position, right? That very much alters your foot strike, right? And so uh, people might get some sort of an injury um, in their foot and consider it a foot weakness or a, a, or a poor function in the foot, but it's caused somewhere up the chain, right? So if you tend to be internally rotated and when your leg comes through, your knee drops to the inside, all right, so now that's introducing a lateral motion. So your foot is coming into the ground, moving more laterally, and now you might pick up some peroneal issues or you might pick up some issues with, with some of your foot bones because the foot is designed to, you know, move, move in that arc. Some people also have a wider foot stamp. Their, their foot strike does not come across it stays too wide and when that happens the foot has to bear more peak power peak forces right so it's really much harder on your foot because there's the hips not helping it all right so all of these things are designed to land the runner safely to get the runner effectively with a high degree of of leg spring stiffness off the ground all right and that landing softly is 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 about protecting the foot and then the coming off the ground effectively is about stiffening those joints. And so we were right at the beginning, we spoke about the triple springs. So people understand, you know, probably the major spring in running is that ankle flexion extension mechanism. But just to know, it's not about pushing off the ground. It's about being able to stiffen against the ground so that when your posture uh, allows you off the ground that most of that elastic energy that you've stored is be, is able to return you to a forward motion. But part of that softening is also the knee, right? So we know from research that if you're a midfoot striker, the, that safety mechanism is mostly your ankle. But if you're a heel striker, your safety mechanism is mostly your knee. So you, whether you're midfoot or a, or a heel striker, it comes down to having those areas that will now receive the peak forces and can contain the lateral forces, protect against the peak forces. So you need to be a good heel striker and you need to be a good midfoot striker, right? Both of those are important. And then, of course, um, your hips are responding to how your feet hit the ground, right? So your hips might have caused um, the placement of your foot on the ground due to its mechanical capabilities. But it also then has to deal with the fallout of having hit the ground, right? And especially athletes that don't spend a lot of time on their feet, and triathletes obviously spend a lot less time on their feet than runners do, right? Um, they they have to realize that the conditioning, the you know, the the density of the bone structure, the conditioning of the tendons and the ligaments. And I'm really pleased to see, and you're one of the leaders in this department. I'm very pleased to see these static holes up on your toes and these static holes with with heavily flexed knees and these static holes with hips flexed and making it more and more functional where people are addressing tendons and ligaments which are those major force receivers and force storers 
in the running game. You know, I think people tend to get stuck on the fact that it's musculature, but it's so much more about uh, ligaments and tendons and connective tissue when it comes to the running game. Yeah, I think I think a good thing to point out because runners are oftentimes they're leery of, say, growing their calves too big. And I get that, right? We want to get stronger. We don't want to get bigger, especially there, because that adds a, a lot of weight. And we can we, we look at the lightest uh, shoes that we can get that offer us the, the most performance and the most protection, those kind of things. But really, when it comes to the powerhouse of where we can get that foot stability, that arch stability, and protect ourselves, one of those areas are going to be the soleus, that deep calf muscle. And so what you were just describing, perfect. We can uh, go over, again, what we've done with Ben Canute, where he's already has uh, calves, very strong calves. We don't want them any bigger. So doing isometrics is a great way to train that function, train those tendons, train that stability. If you just do something like a simple lunge and you're in a stationary lunge, now you're in that bent knee position and now we're lifting that heel up and down slowly. It's going to be really tough on your balance because that's working like crazy to stabilize, right? And so that's just a perfect example about how you can hold that position for say uh, five, 10 seconds without losing your balance. That's the goal. That's the challenge. But at the same time, we have a nice isometric um, exercise that's not really there to grow anything. It's to, just to get those connections that much stronger. And and I love drills like that. I think uh, that's been a main focus with somebody like Ben. And we've seen his calves have not gotten bigger, but he's certainly gotten a lot stronger. Yeah, I think to to add that off, and we'll speak about this in our in our next podcast as well. But just so people understand that that the soleus, you know, it's called the second heart, right? It's so important in and in vascular function as well. But it's a very deep, flat, wide muscle. It's actually bigger and stronger than the gastroc, and it's used during knee uh, when your knee is flexed. It only functions when your knee is flexed. When your knee is extended, then we're talking about the gastroc. Right, and the gastroc responds very, very quickly to strength training and so on. So again, just you know, our listeners just be aware that you know when you're doing strength training with an extended knee, and you tend to have that kind of of muscle morphology that you tend to build muscle, it's that straight knee work, right? So you know, you'll often see very powerful cyclists have these giant gastrocs, right? And as you rightfully said. Having a weight way down at the end of that lever is very important. I mean, early research of, of, of Great Rift Valley runners is that their calf size is something like 12 to 15% smaller than that of their European counterparts in, in running, right? And so it's also, uh, you know, how we are designed, how we are built. But again, just looking at animals that are great runners, you know, looking at, at border collies, looking at cheetahs and gazelles and stuff like that. They have these very big quad glute muscles and they have very, very well-developed tendons, but they don't have a lot of muscle in that lower leg. And it's the same with runners, you know, it's about the tendons and the ligaments in that lower leg, but those tendons and ligaments are primarily attached to the soleus through the Achilles into the foot. So that that's the key component there. Yeah. And I think, you know, we, 
we can talk about other issues that we generally see with lack of mobility through the ankle. And I think that's the final piece, at least in this conversation to, to go over. And I have, again, the, the standards that I feel like are universal. One of them is that people should have pretty equal ankle mobility on each side, right? So that's the first thing is, and if I have somebody who is doing our ankle mobility assessment, again, that's in our movement improvement, they, let's say they have two inches of uh, that mobility on one side in our assessment, and then the other side, they have, let's say, two and a half inches. That's, that is within a half an inch. That to me is about the max that we want to be in that difference. And we should, should still really try to do our best to get it close to two and two as we can. But I'd rather see that standard on somebody than the three inches to five inches of uh, mobility that we want to see. And, and I think everyone should be able to get to three. So I would tell that athlete, we want to do the mobility to get to three on each side minimum. But then for some taller athletes, athletes that have a little bit more range, they might go a little bit closer to five, even five and a half inches right, right around there. But my point that I'll finish with there is that if you look at an athlete who has, let's say, three inches on one side and four on the other, that to me is even a bigger red flag than the athlete who had two and two and a half. So, you know, looking at those standards, it's important because we want to be able to get good mobility, good range but good control of that rain. And so those are things that it's ongoing. It's things we should always check and recheck back into our programming and making sure that we're keeping up with the demands of our sport. So uh, a lot of times when we are looking at switching up some of our emphasis, we'll say in our training, we now may have some need for more ankle mobility, especially as we're preparing for more speed work, et cetera. So, you know, we'll talk more in the other episodes about how this works up the chain and what happens. But I know that if we meet those standards with the big toe, with the foot, uh, the arch stability, with the ankle mobility, then right there, we're probably solving, um, I'd say maybe 70% of the problems that we see just by starting there. Yeah, absolutely. Matt, I, I'll, I'll add to that by you know making it a little bit more global uh, and finish off with that too for me today. Uh, athletes must pronate, right? This whole concept of looking at a video and your ankle's got to be dead up straight, right? It starts on that outside, it comes across, and there's a little loading moment on that inside that loads the arch. And while the arch is loading, the ankle is flexing further, right? But it's flexing because of the weight of the body passing over that, the center of mass passing over that pivot point. And that's the big load of those tendons uh, in the ankle and in the calf. So that's the, that's the first thing. Uh, they must pronate. They just mustn't overpronate because then there's power loss again, right? And then the risk of injury. The other thing is that there's an optimal range, right? So that's the big challenge that triathletes have because they swim and they run. So swimmers need tremendous plantar flexion, so much so that the top of their foot is is in a line with their shin. I mean, it's it's phenomenal how great swimmers have that complete flipper at the bottom there. But runners need exactly the opposite, right? They need a lot of dorsiflexion. 
So I've always used, you know, before I met you, one of my assessments was, and you can obviously tell some stuff from the hips, some stuff from the knees, uh, some stuff with what's going on if the foot is locked up a little bit and so on, but a very good little soleus test is in a regular pair of running shoes, can you sit down on your haunches? Can you go into a squat position without lifting your heels off the ground? That's a good start. Right? Got, if you can't sit down on your haunches and you're not limited by your knees or your hips, you're just limited by your ankles, you're probably a good candidate for starting to work on that soleus and, and that ankle mobility, right? Um, and then uh, I think the last thing to finish off there is 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 just to say, Take care of your damn feet because they are where the rubber meets the road. Taking care of your dogs, we used to call it. Uh, my final thought on this is just looking at what most people are dealing with. Um, we've heard a lot about grip strength and longevity. And people with really good grip strength, they tend to have uh, a healthier, longer life. And that really isn't about because just their pure grip strength is is better than everybody else's is because of the training most likely that they had to do for years and years to develop that kind of grip strength that's really what it comes down to and what i would say is on our side of things endurance athletes i use that same concept but i say to me the number one priority is grip strength but in the feet ah uh, yep Yep. Fantastic. Matt, once again, fantastic to spend time with you. Looking forward to seeing you next week. Look after yourself, buddy, and we'll, we'll speak again soon. Yeah, I'll see you next week. As always, thanks for listening to the Run Form podcast. And as a reminder, we offer a totally free movement improvement assessment on our Pendola Project website. Here, you can get your own personalized protocol that will help your running today. So give that a try. Also, Bobby and I are experts on any question app where you can ask us, well, any question. So reach out to us directly there. Finally, if you learned anything new today, don't forget to share it with your compadres and leave us a quick review. That really helps us a lot. All the links you need are in the show notes below. Till next time, have a great run.